0: Matthew 21, beginning in verse 23. And if you don't have a Bible, the text is printed in the bulletin there for you. This is a week that the church typically celebrates the Passion Week, uh, beginning with the Triumphal Entry, Palm Sunday. This is not something required in God's Word to do, but it's something that we're free to do. And um, typically, either we look in the sermon at uh, Jesus' triumphal entry, writing on the donkey through the gates into Jerusalem, or something that happened that week. We're going to be looking at something that that happened that week, probably Tuesday of of the Passion Week. Something to think about before we read this passage. I'm sorry, I can tell my voice is already going to give me fits here. Something to be listening for is this. Jesus, over and over through the Gospels talks about belief. And even those who go before Him are talking about belief. But He especially talks about belief. That's a dominant theme uh, in the Gospel of John especially. We're in Matthew this morning. But when Jesus speaks about belief, He's either telling you to believe in God, believe what God said, or to believe what the Scripture said. He might say it, believe Moses, but that's just a way of saying believe what the law of God said, or to believe in Him to take his word for what he's saying. This passage is unique in that Jesus speaks about believing someone else. And to the people he's addressing, which includes us through this passage, here's what he's saying. This other person, what he's saying, is not at odds with what God says or the, or the Scriptures say or what Jesus himself is saying. But if you do not listen to him... The Messiah will have a low place in your heart, if any, at the end of the day. Who does He want us to believe? Matthew 21, beginning in verse 23. And when He, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to Him as He was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered, Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, at one level, this is a special Sunday, and, and it is a particular celebration around the world, as next week, next Sunday will be even more so. But, oh Lord... Every Lord's Day is special. And every time we open your Word, it is special. And we always need your help. Uh, As the psalmist says, we need you to dig out ears for us to hear. So we pray again that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past fall and uh, into the winter, our midweek Bible study, we, we studied the book of Proverbs and just ended this recently, about a month ago. And after just a few weeks of doing some foundational stuff about Proverbs, just what it is and the, the direction of the book, every week we took up a different topic that's addressed in Proverbs. and You kind of have to cull from the whole book to come up with these different themes. Well, The subject that we ended on, and I didn't plan it this way, it just kind of worked this way, but it was the subject of adultery. Massive applications about it in Proverbs, especially in the first seven chapters or so. Lots of application. Well, we ended on that subject, and uh, the first midweek Bible study that I do every week is the women's Bible study on Wednesday morning. Well, that morning, a woman that I had met at another church service, she came and visited because she heard that we had this women's Bible study. So she just showed up and uh, had no idea what I was teaching on and just uh, came, sat right in front of me in the front row, and it's the subject of adultery. So I'm teaching, and I, now I like a lot of class participation in these weekly Bible studies. Well, after a while, now she's never been... She didn't know what I was going to teach, and she's never met anyone in the class. And after a while, she raises her hand, and she right out of the gate says, well, I have committed adultery. And what I saw was la And just as she talked about it, at one point, you know, she's in the front row. She looked over her shoulder and said, don't judge me. But she was very honest. And she didn't speak about it as if it was no big deal. She said it had brought real damage into her marriage and her life. But she was very open about it in front of a group she had never met. Now, a couple of things struck me about that. One is, she is not afraid of us. Second thing is, this is very rare in Bible studies. Now, if you've grown up in the church, and especially in a Bible-belty sort of atmosphere, you may be thinking, yeah, it's rare. But just even if you're thinking that, that should tell us something. That should tell us there's some disconnect between what we claim to believe about ourselves and about how bad sin is and about what Christ has done so that we don't have to fear man. Between that, you know, the official theology and what we're really going to let out. And to her it seemed they were very hooked up close to each other. But that's very rare. Why is it so rare? And, and really, that gets at the very thing that Jesus is addressing in this passage. Now, just some context. Again, this is probably two days after the triumphal entry. Jesus has gone into the temple in Jerusalem, and He's teaching. And by the way, that, when, when He was brought in for arrest, that was one of the points He made. I taught in front of everybody. I didn't do these things in a corner. I said all these things publicly. Why are you drumming up false witnesses? police teaching in public, and uh, the chief priests and the elders show up. Now, uh, without going into great depth about who these guys are, basically, these are the aristocracy of the practicing Jewish religious world in Jerusalem. Uh, in, In the practicing, devout Jewish world in Jerusalem, these are the haves. Now, if you just look at the little snapshots that Matthew, just, just in his gospel, not looking at any others, that he lets us see about what are the chief priests and the elders like, it's not good. You know, I don't know if you've ever had two friends that you felt like they're not good for each other. You know, when those two people are together, they just they kind of dig themselves in a the hole. You almost wonder if the chief priests and the elders were something like that. Here's a few snapshots. Uh, earlier in Matthew, you've got the chief priests and the elders meeting at the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. And they are plotting how to have Jesus arrested by stealth and killed. Uh, a little bit later on, you've got scenes like Judas Iscariot, after he betrays Jesus, being just overcome with conviction and grief. He's mortified. He comes back to the chief priests and the elders with whom he had arranged Jesus' arrest, and he tries to give them back the 30 pieces of silver. And they say, what is that to us? You're kind of like, this is not our problem. Go go do something. Uh, The people who stirred up the crowd when Jesus stood before them next to Pilate... The people who stirred up the crowd to cry out for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus were the chief priests and the elders. When Jesus was on the cross... Now, think about this. If you witnessed a Roman crucifixion, you would have to have a heart of ice to make fun of a person on a Roman cross. As He's on the cross, they mock Him and say... You know, he's the Savior of the world, he can't save himself. If he's the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross and let everyone see it. And at the end of Matthew, when Christ has been risen, has been raised from the dead, it's the chief priests and the elders who contact the Roman soldiers and pay them what Matthew calls a sufficient sum of money to tell everyone that The word is, the disciples stole the body. If you have any problems, come talk to us. Not very flattering. They come to Jesus. They see Him teaching publicly. And they challenge Him about authority. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time on this first paragraph. But this is so verbally skillful, it's amazing. Because this group comes to Jesus thinking, we're going to ask you a question on our terms. And you're going to answer our question on our terms. Bad idea when you're dealing with Jesus. You will never set the terms with Jesus. So he says, This, well, I tell you what, I'm going to ask you a question, and if you answer my question, then I'll answer your question. The baptism of John, was that from heaven or from man? And they get painted into a corner, and they have to say, We don't know. And the amazing thing about that is not only that he did not let them set the terms, He allowed them to paint themselves in a corner. But the other thing is this the question he asked, if they had answered it, would have answered their first question. Hey, guys, if the baptism of John was from heaven, if it was of God, not of man, that would mean that the one that John the Baptist pointed to is ratified by God, ratified by heaven. To whom did he point? He pointed to me. If you answered that question correctly, you would understand by whose authority do I do what I do and teach what I teach? From God. The conversation could have ended there, but it doesn't. And Jesus says this What do you think? A man had two sons. And by the way, that phrase might ring a bell because the, what we call the parable of the prodigal son starts with the same line it's about two sons. A man had two sons. And here's what happens. This man comes to his two sons. He says to both of them the same thing. Son, go and work in the vineyard. One says, "Sure," and doesn't do it. One says, "No," but then later changes his mind and does do it. That's the parable. What does it mean? Now, here I want to take these out of order. First, I want to look at the one who said, "I will go, sir." Actually, in Greek, that would be, I will go Lord, curios. but then doesn't go. And just taking this in its context, what we have to understand that to mean is, that's talking about those who did not believe John the Baptist. That's an emphasis in this text. John came, he baptized, he had a message. Some believed him, some did not. The one who says, yeah, Dad, I'll go, and doesn't go, is the one who rejects the message of John the Baptist. So first off, rejecting John, but then second, believing John. And those who believe in John, those are the ones in the parable who said, no, no, I'm not going to go work in the vineyard. But then later, they changed their mind, and they went. All right, now first off, rejecting John. In the parable... This is encapsulated by a son of a father who says, I will go, sir. I will go, dad. I will go work in the vineyard. And then doesn't do that. And here's what that means. That means at some level, the chief priests and the elders, who are the ones who rejected John the Baptist's message and his baptism, at some level, they have said to God, I'll do what you want. And at some level, in reality they've said no to God. Now, how have they done both of those? How have the chief priest and the elders said, yes, God, I'll do what you want? You know, I, I just painted such a dark picture of them, it, it may almost seem like they rode up on their Harleys, you know, to the temple and have gang tattoos, and they're kind of throwing down with... with they, that's not how they were viewed in their day. Where are they in this text? They're in the temple. These were men who knew quite a bit of Scripture by memory. These are the kind of men that would have taught their children the Shema. Remember, if you were here a few weeks ago studying that, that you need to know this first off, son, daughter. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. You would have heard that in their house all the time. They would have been tithers... They would have been regulars at the temple. This is not surprising for them to be there. They would have been faithful to be uh, participants in the Jewish feasts and festivals, the Passover, Feast of Booths, stuff like that. In other words, unlike all the Gentile nations around the world, these would be men who are saying, we follow in the words and the ways and the commands of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what we do. In fact, they did it professionally. So in that sense, these are people who sing psalms and say the Word of God. They are saying to God, I'll do what you want me to do. But at some level, they haven't. This is the rub. How have they, how have they actually said to God, no, no, I will not go in the vineyard and work? How have they done that? If you were reading, it wouldn't be in a book, but if you were reading Matthew for the very first time and you had no other Gospels, when you got to this part, what would you do? You'd go, all right, what did John the Baptist say at the beginning of this Gospel that they rejected? If you go back to what we call Matthew chapter 3, what kinds of things does John the Baptist say when he prepares the way for Jesus. He says things like this, do not presume to say to yourselves, we're children of Abraham. God can take one of these stones, and there are no shortage of those in the Holy Land. God can take one of these stones, and He can turn it into a child of Abraham. And He says that against the backdrop of His larger message, which is what? Repent, repent, repent. John the Baptist has been called the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though he shows up in the New Testament. And his message very much falls in line with the Old Testament prophets. You have turned away from the Lord. Turn to Him. Turn from your sin. Turn from what you're proud of about yourselves. And turn to the living God. Repent. And by the way, It's not just those idol-worshipping Gentiles out there that need a bath, that need washing before Messiah comes. Everyone needs a preparatory bath. Jews and Gentiles alike. That was the message of John. And what had happened? The Pharisees, the lawyers, when I say the lawyers, not the attorneys, I mean the experts in the law of God, the scribes, the chief priests, the elders, rejected that message. People turned out in mass to hear John and repent and receive his baptism of repentance, but not those groups. And in another gospel, Luke chapter seven, Luke's, Luke makes a special point. this is in Luke 7:30, it says that all kinds of people just delighted and received and gloried in what Jesus had to say. But not the religious leaders. And Luke says this because they rejected John's baptism. That you could connect the dots directly from rejecting John to rejecting Jesus. There's a way to be a Bible reader and a Bible student, a cutter of checks to church and ministry a reader of biblical books. Uh, In our context, a celebrator of Easter and Christmas. There's a way to do that where we are saying outwardly, I will do what you want, God, and really not do it. And what it looks like is, I will not admit how bad I am. Let me ask you this. If you're involved in a community group, when, when a community group is sitting around talking about a passage of Scripture that's been preached on, <clears throat> and is processing it together and trying to, trying to flesh out application together, and people start broaching the subject of their own failures, their own sins, are you able to broach yours? Or is that always farmed out to the other people in the group? And here's what I want to say to you. And I'm saying this as an introvert who decided to go into public speaking for a vocation. As an introvert, I know where this can go in your mind and heart. And where it can go is, well, I'm a private person. And some of us are, are more private than not I mean, you know, some of us have friends and they're just out there. And some of us are very reserved. But what we... We can be saying to ourselves, I'm private. And what it really might mean is, I am proud. And so I'm going to pretend like my spouse and I never fight. I'm going to pretend. I'm going to pretend that I never go long stretches without really talking to God, really from the heart. I'm going to pretend like I don't damage people with my anger and my words. I'm going to pretend. I'm going to pretend that I have never had an addiction to anything. When we do that, we're showing our cards. Think about it this way. Think about what kind of Christian material out there energizes you. And there's just limitless stuff. There's books, there's conferences, there's blogs. There's MP3s. I mean, kind of the world is your oyster. If you want to read and research more about Christian stuff of any stripe, what, what, gets, what just percolates inside of you? Is it when somebody really sticks it to the liberals? It, or is it the sermon where the, the fiercest applications are aimed at somebody out there? And all the sentences start with, many in our day will say such and such. And so the barbs of application are aimed at the people out there saying that. Rather than aimed in the room at our own heart. What energizes us more? It could be that that really we are not able to apologize. And that the people who know us best know that about us. That we may have vast amounts of scripture memorized. We may have a great handle on systematic theology. And I would commend both of those things. I hope you learn as much of the Bible by heart as you can, and I want us to be a theologically robust church, but you can do those things and be a bear with those who know you best. And when we when we fake an apology, it begins with things like, "I'm sorry if you feel that way." "I'm sorry but you're wrong." When we do that, those are little gauges saying, it may be that your official theology and your real theology have virtually nothing to do with one another. These men knew psalms of confession and lament and hungering for God by heart. They knew psalms by heart that were preparations specifically, explicitly for the Messiah. And they hated Him. And they hated being exposed. They hated having their own faults pointed out. And one of the things Jesus says at the end is, You know what? These tax collectors and these prostitutes, they're going into the kingdom before you. And what that means when He says before you is not so much they're in front of you in line. It means it's happening in plain sight. And, that's what, and He says that explicitly. You saw it with your own eyes. And you never at any point changed your mind. That Greek verb, change your mind, it's a little bit different than the Greek verb repent. It really means something like you never just even gave it a second look. That you never stop to say, you know what? Maybe I don't get everything I think I get. You know, maybe if I can quote entire Psalms and uh, I just decimate my spouse... Maybe I'm off about some things. Maybe if I always have to be right, always, maybe Jesus is on to something. And to at least give it a second look. Now, that's, that's the one son. But the other son is the one. This I just think this is fascinating. That when the father comes to him and says, go work in the vineyard, on the front end he says, no. And then he does change his mind, gives it a second thought, and then he goes. What population is this? In the context, it seems that he's talking specifically about the tax collectors and the prostitutes. So we've got to ask the same question. How did they say no to God, and then how did they say yes to God? How they said no is the fact that these aren't Egyptian tax collectors and prostitutes. They're not Greek tax collectors and prostitutes. They are Judean tax collectors and prostitutes. Who were the tax collectors? They don't fare well in the Gospels. The tax collectors were ethnically Jewish men who had been constricted by Rome to collect taxes in their region. Now, it was bad enough being the guy that's the face of Roman taxes as we near April 15th. Let this wash over you. It's bad enough being the face of the taxes, but the way that tax collectors made their salary was to overcharge. And so the reason they were especially hated is that, okay, not only is it bad enough that this is in violation when a Jewish man is telling me the the final tab, it's not only in violation of the Mosaic law not to engage in usury, profiting through exorbitant uh, interest, not only are you doing that to me, But you're a fellow Jew and you sold out to Rome and you're ripping me off. People hated these guys. And these guys at some level, whether it was conscious or unconscious, they had to say as ethnically Jewish people, as descendants of Abraham, I want money more than I want God's way. Well, and the prostitutes are Judean prostitutes. Do we have to spell that out? Sexual sin is referred to in the Old Testament as an outrage in Israel. That it was an abomination to consider not only sexual intimacy outside of marriage, but to be hired out for it. For that to be how you make your income. These are Judean prostitutes. They have explicitly said to God, No, I will not walk in the ways of your commands. But then they changed their mind. Now, what does that look like? It means that at some level, they had heard John the Baptist, and something he said registered with them. What registered? Well, again, if you were reading Matthew, you kind of maybe go back in that scroll or go back in that parchment and, and look at what was written. And what was written? that John the Baptist comes and he says I baptize you with water but there's one coming after me after me he's greater than I am he will baptize you with the holy spirit and with fire the divine fire that is able on the one hand to destroy to consume what god hates his enemies but is able to refine and cleanse. He will baptize you with His fire in your heart to cleanse what no man can cleanse, to cleanse what even I, John the Baptist, who's preparing the way for Him, that I cannot cleanse. I can't cleanse it in me. I sure can't cleanse it in you. But He can. And He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will empower you to turn away from your idols and to walk in His ways The way of righteousness. The way of life. And by God's blessing, prostitutes and tax collectors began to think about that. Now God had to give them ears to hear, but at some point they said, I think He means it. I think He means it. I think that if what He's saying is true then I can have hired out myself and quite literally played the whore. And the Messiah will baptize me with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Whether they had the theological categories for that or not, to just believe John that Jesus can do that and that He will, and He's willing to. Tax collectors... Who had just become so calloused to sneering Judeans across the table from them, who hate their guts, and who probably are doing better financially than most of their peers, but they still have to live with themselves. Finally, said, I think he means it. And they started coming. And the the, the text and the other Gospels would lead us to believe that it was not one or two isolated, random prostitutes, one or two random tax collectors, that they were coming in groups. Now, can we think about that? I I want you to think about who's in this room. We're in this room. Um, Not only are we not in a Hindu region or an Islamic region or even a largely unchurched American region we're in a very churched region now make no assumptions about who's in the room but that is our place right what that might do if you have turned your back on God is to make you feel extra shame and it may be that you're sitting here and you're thinking you know what Honestly, I have been so cynical for so long. I don't know that God wants to have a relationship with me. I've been so sarcastic about Him and church and the Bible and idiot Christians that I grew up with. I've been so severe and caustic about it. Why in the world would He want to spend time with me? And here is how great God is. Jesus can cleanse you with the Holy Spirit and with fire in your cynical heart. That the person who's sitting here right now, who may be thinking, uh, most people don't know this, and I want to keep it that way, but I have been self-medicating for so long, I I can't talk to God. Why would God want to talk to somebody that likes vodka more than they like Him? If you turn to Him, here here is what you will find. It will be like what happened to the prophet Isaiah when he saw God. Isaiah was having a great day, and then he saw God. And it absolutely decimated him. And he said, woe is me, I'm undone. And the first thing he thought about was the way he talked. The stupid things I say, the inappropriate things I say, the hateful things I say, the lewd and perverse things that I've said. And in some weird way, it's kind of encouraging that Isaiah must have said things like that so that we don't feel alone and crazy. But automatically it washed over him the way I've talked and the way all my peers and family and kinsfolk, the way they talk. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And God sends an angel over to the heavenly altar where the burnt offering takes place. And He takes a pair of tongs, He removes a coal from the altar, the place of sacrifice, and He touches Isaiah where? Not generically. He touches him on his lips and says, See, this has touched your lips. Your sins are atoned for. I mean, what if the cleansing work of Jesus Christ didn't just go on you generically? What if the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ was applied by the high priest to your cynicism? To our sarcasm? The blood of Christ applied directly to our apathy about the Word and prayer, put right on it. And we were cleansed and empowered by the divine fire and the Holy Spirit. There's there's a very powerful picture of this, and it's at the end. I know I've quoted this, but I, I can't go long stretches without quoting this. And it's, it's a short story by Flannery O'Connor. Um, there's about a dozen of these on the coffee counter. Whoever gets to them first, they're yours. So exercise Christian charity, no fighting and no wagering, please. But if, you, if you're curious about this. But this is one of the last short stories that Flannery O'Connor ever wrote. It's called Revelation. And the main character in the story is a self-righteous churched woman named Ruby Turpin. And she is exposed and shamed by an ugly, unattractive girl earlier in the story. And the girl's name, this is so beautiful, is Mary Grace. Grace exposes her. In fact, Grace actually throws the book at her at one point, like a literal book. Mrs. Turpin, very proud, she lives on a pig farm, do the math. And she she goes back to the pig farm. She's working that afternoon. She's watching the sunset. And she's just churning about how dare this ugly girl talk to me that way and expose me that way. And it said that finally, there's no one else out in the field besides her and the pigs. She looks up and she draws in, lungs full of air, and she screams, Who do you think you are? Who is she screaming at? The girl, she is screaming at God because she has the felt sense that that girl was a messenger. Voice echoes into the farmland, and as the sun's going down, she has a vision. And the vision is of a bridge, a bridge of light going into the sky with all these people on the bridge. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of blacks in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, that's her husband, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away their virtues were being burned away. What does that mean? Does that mean that our attempts to obey what God says mean nothing? It depends. It depends on what we mean by that question. If we mean, if God saves me, And He does baptize me with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I'm striving as a child to walk in His ways and follow in step with His Spirit. And I make these little frail gestures of obedience. Does He care? He loves it. He is cheering us on and He welcomes it as a loving Father. But if we mean, doesn't my parenting count for something? Doesn't my getting children there on time for school showered or bathed, or at least kind of looking like it, doesn't that count for something? Doesn't my attendance here, doesn't it count for something? If by count for something you mean, we mean, doesn't that have some merit before God? No. And if we view my kindness, my parenting, what a good friend I am. I am nice, I'm consistent when other people are mean and snarky and inconsistent. If, if that is something in our heart that makes us not need Jesus, it needs to be burned away. And you know what would be, I'll end with this, you know what would be an amazing application of that? Do you know how we could publicly tell that we were starting to really get that in our bones? You know what it would look like? Is that as we thought, who in my life is someone that I could invite to worship? Rather than invite the person who is already nice and already moral and maybe has actually said, I'm looking for a church. We could invite the outcast. We could invite our cultural equivalent of a tax collector or a prostitute. By the way, we've got the latter, for sure. And the end game would not to be, and there'll be DPC members, the end game would be, what if they walked in this room and they heard the gospel, a gospel that's good news, even for people who on the front end said, God, I don't want what you want. But when they heard the good news, they changed their mind. And they walked into the kingdom of God. And once you walk in there, you stay in there. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, please, whatever it is about us, in us, of which we are proud, the thing that's making us look at others and shake our heads, And think to ourselves, they just don't get it like I get it. We ask that you would have mercy on us. We know that John the Baptist, he's with you. He's not in the wilderness. But that thing he said to get us ready for you, Lord Jesus, to repent, to turn, to put no stock in your past or your pedigree, we pray that would land in our hearts. Lord Jesus, we praise you, the one who washes and baptizes where no man can wash or baptize. We praise your name. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.